0: Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on Corporate Governance and Capital Markets Regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related activities. This update covers a period from October 3rd to October 31st, Halloween. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10 on October 7th, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law the Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act, the Climate-Related Financial Risk Act, and the Voluntary Carbon Market Disclosures Act. These amendments to California's Health and Safety Code are more prescriptive than the climate-related disclosure requirements proposed by the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission in 2022 and will affect thousands of companies nationwide. Three of the requirements under the new amendments include... One US companies with total annual revenues in excess of 1 billion that do business in California will be required to publicly disclose all scope 1, 2 and 3 greenhouse gas emissions on an annual basis. Reporting on scope 1 and 2 emissions will begin in 2026 and disclosure of scope 3 emissions will begin in 2027. Number two US companies with total annual revenues in excess of 500 million that do business in California will be required to, on a biannual basis, publicly disclose climate-related financial risk in accordance with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures Framework. Beginning on January 1st, 2026, covered entities must, on a biannual basis, prepare and make available on their websites a report disclosing two items, one- their climate-related financial risk, and two, measures adopted to reduce and adapt to such risk. And number three, companies operating in California that make net zero carbon neutral or greenhouse gas emission reduction claims will be required to publicly disclose how they determine the accuracy of those claims, how interim progress is measured, whether they obtained third-party verification, and if such companies purchase or use Voluntary carbon offsets sold within California. This requirement goes into effect January 1st, 2024. Number nine, on October 13th, in an effort to increase the transparency of the securities lending market, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission adopted a new rule that requires lenders of securities to report to the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority the terms and pricing of securities loans. The rule specifies that the information must be reported by the end of the day that the loan is obtained or modified, and that the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority must make certain information public no later than the morning of the next business day. The Securities Exchange Commission explains that the current lack of public information and data gaps create inefficiencies in the securities lending market, and make it difficult for borrowers and lenders to understand whether the terms of their loans are competitive. The information that must be disclosed by the lender to the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority includes the following seven items. One, legal name of the issuer of the securities be borrowed. Two, time and date of loan. Three, name of the platform or venue if one is used. Four, amount of reportable securities loaned. Five, rates, fees, charges, and rebates for the loan. Six, termination date of loan, N7, borrower type. Financial Industry Regulatory Authority would collect but not disclose the identities of borrowers and lenders, as well as whether the loan's purpose is to close out a fail-to-deliver. Some cases, fail-to-deliver results from so-called naked short-selling, whereby a short-seller sells shares he or she never borrowed. The rule will become effective 60 days after it appears in the Federal Register. The commission announced that it's also adopting a new rule to provide greater transparency into short selling. That rule requires institutional investment managers that meet or exceed certain thresholds to report monthly on a specified short position data and short activity data for equity securities. The SEC will aggregate the resulting data by security and keep the identity of the reporting manager confidential. It will publicly disseminate the aggregated data via the electronic data gathering analysis and retrieval system on a delayed basis. This new data will supplement short-sale data now publicly available. This rule will be effective 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. Number eight, on October 16th, U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's Division of Examinations issued its 2024 Priorities Report, despite listing ESG as an examination focus for 2021 2022 and 2023, the SEC did not include ESG in its latest list of priorities published for use by investment advisors, brokers, and other securities industry members. The priorities the Commission did list for 2024 include anti-money laundering controls, cryptocurrency, and cybersecurity. Number seven, on October 19th, the U.S. Senate Banking Committee held a hearing to consider the nomination of U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Commissioner Mark Ueda. Commissioner Ueda has been serving out the remaining term of former SEC Commissioner Elan Roisman, who left the Commission in January 2022. If reappointed, Commissioner Ueda's new term would end in 2028. Prior to joining the Commission, Mr. Ueda worked for the former ranking member of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, Patrick Toomey of Pennsylvania. At the SEC, Mr. Ueda served as counsel for Commissioners Paul Atkins and Michael Piwowire, as well as Senior Advisor SEC Chair Jay Clayton. Earlier in his career, Mr. Ueda worked in private law practice, as well as for the California Department of Corporations. In his testimony before the committee, Commissioner Ueda said his service at the SEC has taught him the need to carefully assess the costs of regulatory activity relative to its benefits. Many of these costs are passed down to workers and retirement savers who are investing for their futures. Number six. On October 26th, in a fireside chat at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler reiterated points he has made in the past about the SEC's climate disclosure rule proposed in March of 2022. But the SEC chair also said that California's new law Requiring companies to report detailed climate information would affect an estimated 1,500 public companies. And Chair Gensler added that the SEC will use those companies combined with the Russell 1,000 companies that already are providing some type of climate disclosure as a baseline when it conducts its cost benefit analysis of the proposed rules. When asked about how the European Union's corporate sustainability reporting directive will affect the SEC's disclosure rules, Chair Gensler said, we are considering U.S. law in the way the U.S. courts interpret it. Chair Gensler noted that of the companies in the Russell 1000, 81% provide some type of climate disclosure and 57% disclose information about their Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions. Chair Gensler explained that although this information is being provided to investors, it is not being presented in a consistent or comparable manner. The SEC plans to require companies to disclose material useful information in a consistent and comparable manner. Kirk Gensler also said that while many investors submitting comments on the proposed rules said scope 3 disclosure of companies' supply chains helps them understand transition risk, the SEC still needs to determine if this type of disclosure is material. Chair Gensler said he agrees with commentators from the agricultural community who said that they should not be included under any scope 3 disclosure requirements. After Chair Gensler's remarks, a legal panel discussed the climate disclosure landscape. Julia Malkinna, a partner at Sullivan & Cromwell, warned that fragmentation of requirements will result in more and varied disclosure and lead to more legal liability for companies. Ms. Malkinna said, disclosure can be required in some jurisdictions and prohibited in others. Beth Ising, a partner at Gibson Dunn, agreed, saying such fragmentation will be burdensome and confusing and will present even more legal risk for multinational companies. Sarah Ford, a partner at Latham & Watkins, explained that the European Union's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive also requires disclosure of supply chain issues not related to climate. This Melkina cautioned that companies are being asked to comply with many different overlapping disclosure regimes very quickly. They need to be very careful to limit their liability. Number five, on October 18th, the New Orleans based US Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld NASDAQ's board diversity rule requiring companies listed on the exchange to have women and minority directors on their boards or explain why they do not. Specifically, the rule requires NASDAQ listed companies to have or explain why they do not have at least two diverse directors, including one female director and one director who self-identifies as a racial or ethnic minority, or LBGTQ. Listed companies also, were required, to publicly disclose board-level diversity statistics using a standardized template. The suit challenging the rule, which was filed by the National Center for Public Policy Research and the Alliance for Fair Board Recruitment, argued that diversity rules fall outside of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's regulatory authority under the 1934 Securities and Exchange Act. The court disagreed, saying that the commission acted within its authority in approving the rule was allowed to consider the opinions of investors who said board diversity information is important to their investment decisions. The plaintiffs have appealed the decision. Back on February 25, 2022, the Council of Institutional Investors and seven other groups filed a joint amicus brief in support of the SEC in this case. The brief argues that many investors and investment advisors Believe board diversity is a material benefit to companies and consider board diversity or the lack of it when making investment decisions. They also factor in diversity considerations when casting votes for directors who serve on the nominating and governance committee. Other organizations that signed the brief are Ariel Investments, Boston Trust Walden, Gang Gals, the Investment Advisor Association, Lord Abbott, Northern Trust Investments, and the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Human Rights. Number four. On October 3rd, in wake of the recent high-profile bank collapses, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation issued a proposed rulemaking that would bolster the governance standards at an estimated 57 banks with total consolidated assets of at least $10 million. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation chairman, Martin Gruenberg, stated that the FDIC observed during the 2008 financial crisis and more recent insured depository institutions' failures in 2023 that insured depository institutions with poor corporate governance and risk management practices were more likely to fail. Chair Grunberg also stated that the proposed guidelines would clarify the FDIC's expectation that corporate governance and risk management frameworks need to evolve along with growth, complexity, and changing business models and risk profiles of larger insured depository institutions. Under the proposed rules, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation clarifies that banks' boards should be composed of at least a majority of independent directors who are diverse in terms of demographic representation, opinion, experience, and ownership. The board is responsible for setting goals, approving a strategic plan and policies, and for selecting and supervising senior management. It's also important that banks, boards, and management adopt and implement codes of ethics that encourage responsible behavior and compensation and performance management programs that do not incentivize imprudent risk-taking. Those rules also state that the code should apply to all directors management employees and that boards should have in place at a minimum audit compensation and risk committees. The audit committee should be composed entirely of outside and independent directors, should be responsible for overseeing financial reporting, independent audits, the chief audit officer, and the internal audit function. Compensation committee should ensure that compensation and performance management do not reward or encourage imprudent risk-taking or violations of legal requirements in pursuit of profit or business objectives. The risk committee should be chaired by an independent director and report directly to the board. Its responsibilities should include approving and periodically reviewing the risk management policies and overseeing the risk management framework. Further oversee risk, the proposed rules state the bank's board should establish a program that identifies measures, monitors, and manages risks appropriate for the size, complexity, and risk profile of the bank to direct management, to take only appropriate risks, and the board should approve a risk profile and risk appetite statement. Those rules also discuss three distinct units, one frontline units, two independent risk management unit, and three an internal audit unit, which should have responsibility and be held accountable to the CEO and the board for monitoring and reporting on compliance with the risk management program. Those rules break down the responsibilities of these three units as follows. One, frontline business units limit the risk taking activities to those approved by management within the risk appetite statement. Two, independent risk management unit led by a chief risk officer with appropriate safeguards to ensure independence from frontline units and senior management. It reports directly to the board's risk committee or the board as a whole. And three, the internal audit unit led by a chief audit officer. And reporting directly to the audit committee or the board and make sure that the risk management program complies with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's proposed rules and is appropriate for the bank's size, complexity, and risk profile. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation says the board should conduct an annual self-assessment evaluating its effectiveness in meeting the standards and the proposed rules. The deadline for commenting on the proposed rules is December 11th. The Council of Institutional Investors currently expects to issue a comment letter in response to the proposed rules prior to the comment letter deadline. Number three, on October 26th, the Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board expressing general support for its proposed amendments that would update the liability threshold for auditors from recklessness to negligence. The Public Company Accounting Oversight Board currently cannot bring an action against negligent auditors which creates a gap in the organization's ability to protect investors. Proposed amendments to the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's rule 3502 would help close this oversight gap and better align the scope of the board's enforcement authority with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 which created the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. In its letter, CII says changing the threshold will appropriately bring it in line with existing requirement for auditors to exercise a standard of reasonable care during the performance of their professional responsibilities. CI's letter adds that in addition to enhancing accountability, proposed amendments may, one, improve audit quality as auditors become more careful in their work, and two, have an incremental positive effect on capital market efficiency. Number two, on October 5th, Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that urged the commission to act on a rulemaking petition to address share traceability issues that have emerged as more companies go public via direct listings of shares and underwriters increasingly waive lockup periods for traditional initial public offerings. The petition, filed in March by a working group of academics, former SEC officials and legal scholars, proposes that the SEC amend Rule 144 to adopt a holding period for unregistered shares after a registration statement becomes effective. Required holding period, the petitioners assert, would balance the interests of companies and early investors in being able to sell unregistered securities against the interests of public shareholders and having an effective remedy under Section 11 of the Securities Act of 1933. Section 11 protects investors and newly public companies by allowing them to sue for material misrepresentations or omissions in companies' registration statements. With traditional initial public offerings, underwriters have typically required 180-day lockup periods for insiders and early investors, preventing them from selling unregistered shares that they acquired before the initial public offering. But lockups are industry practice, not a legal requirement. And increasingly, underwriters have been willing to waive lockup periods allowing unregistered shares to be sold alongside registered shares in an initial public offering. And direct listings of shares also let insiders and early investors sell unregistered shares alongside registered shares. Both trends make it difficult for investors to trace their shares to a registration statement to prove that they have legal standing to sue under Section 11. This problem came into sharp focus on June 1st, but the United States Supreme Court held that plaintiffs suing under Section 11 must trace their shares to a registration statement that they allege was defective even when they acquired the shares via a direct listing. While the Council of Institutional Investors supports a required holding period, our letter does not recommend a specific time frame. Instead, our letter points to the petition suggestion of 90 days after the effectiveness of the registration statement or the filing of the next Form 10-Q or Form 10-K after that date as a useful starting point for the SEC and public commentators to consider. And the number one most significant development in corporate governance, capital markets regulation during the period of October 3rd to October 31st occurred on October 17th when the Board of Directors of the Council of Institutional Investors announced that CII Executive Director Amy Boris, has decided to retire next spring after more than 17 years at CII, including more than three years as executive director. Ms. Boris said that serving as CII's executive director has been a privilege, a pleasure, and the highlight of my professional career. I'm constantly inspired by the commitment of CII members to advancing corporate governance standards and practices to promote long-term shareholder value. I'm grateful to our members for sharing their knowledge with me for their rock-solid support of CII through the pandemic and beyond, and I thank the board for its warm and unstinted guidance. I love leading CII, and I'm proud of the work of our superb staff, but it's time for me to step down. I'm confident that with a growing membership, solid financial underpinning, and talented team, CII continue to be the leading voice for corporate governance and strong shareholder rights. CII board chair Aisha Mustagney said on behalf Of the CI Board of Directors, I want to thank Amy for her unwavering dedication and leadership to CII, steering the organization successfully through the pandemic with grace. We wish her all the best and an enjoyable retirement. The CI Board has ensured a smooth transition. A search committee of the board has begun the process of selecting an executive recruitment firm to help identify candidates for CI's next executive director. Interested candidates should contact Melissa Fader, CI's Director of Membership and Operations at Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, at CII.org. That completes my monthly U.S. Corporate Governance Capital Markets Update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at CII.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.